Welcome to the Everything Hurts podcast, episode 12, the early morning edition, or at least it's early morning in Boston. In Norway, it's almost three o'clock. And they accuse your people of slackness. <laughs> almost three o'clock. There you go. My name is Dr. James Heathers. I live in the sea. This is Dr. Daniel Jesus Quintana. He lives in... Uh, I live in Oslo. And that is... Norway. Isn't that adorable? <laughs> and today we will be talking about something we wrote. Yeah, it's uh, it's finally... We've been mentioning it in the, in the prior podcast, but it's finally out. Have we? We have. Yeah, I think so. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I'm sure. I'm sure you're right. So we we have been mentioning it previously, and now it's finally published. Yeah. So our um published last week in uh, translational psychiatry, which I is I like that journal. It's a great. I'm glad we sent. I'm glad we sent it. Yes. Yeah, like so am I. It's uh it's an open access journal, so it's uh, free for everyone to read. But uh, yeah, it's not free to publish. Yeah? No. No. But yeah, we have published our. <laughs> We've published a, a new paper, which is our guidelines for reporting articles on psychiatry and heart rate variability, or GRAPH for short. Hmm. Well, it had to have a sexy acronym, didn't it? Of course, of course. And uh, <laughs> it took me quite a while to, to come up with it, but we, we, we got there in the end. Yeah. That's, uh, it's, it's, it's good simply to have the shorthand to refer to something, yeah. even if it's, even if it's kind of, um, I will accept a certain level of corniness and unnecessity. Yeah. Is that no. Yeah. If, if it's a simple matter of a refer to this thing, acronym, get out of my hair. Yeah. It's short, short and sweet. Yeah. Well, the paper's not short or sweet. It's long and, uh. It's not really rambly. There's just an awful lot of information to put in one place. So before I ruin it and start yelling about things that don't specifically matter on a detail level, why don't you tell the nice people um, what it is and what we did? Well, it's basically a uh, set of reporting guidelines. Now, it's one thing to tell people this is what you should be doing when it comes to your research, or this is how you should rep- uh, this is how you should approach your research. But the thing is, when it comes to heart rate variability, there are so many ways you can uh, skin the proverbial cat. There are so many approaches, uh, different populations you can test, uh, different types of experiments, different types of interventions. So rather than taking the approach of okay, you know, you can do this when you're doing uh, this sort of approach, or you know, all these sorts of caveats. We decided to take the approach of making uh, reporting guidelines, yeah? So there's not a right or a wrong way to do things, but you should actually tell the reader, tell the reviewer what you did and why. And I guess a lot of this actually stemmed from being a reviewer, for one, of a lot of papers. And I think almost all of it stemmed from being a reviewer for you. Yeah, well, two, two, two things. Firstly, being a reviewer and uh, reading all this stuff. And I, I found I was actually requesting much of the same things when I was reviewing papers. People weren't, um, weren't reporting, for instance, the, um, the specific frequency bands when they were looking at spectral heart rate variability. They weren't reporting how they actually recruited their populations, a whole bunch mm. of stuff. Now, the second reason 
that um, that we came up with this, and this is something that um, uh, me and Gail Alvarez, who was our co-author on this, have uh, been talking about for a while, is that um, both of us have done, um, well, we, we both worked on um, the largest meta-analysis of heart rate variability to date. And in... Is it is it still? It is, well, I mean, I hope so. It, it, it only came out about, uh, about four months ago. Uh, I, I don't think that anyone's topped it yet. Which uh, is this? That's Gale's paper in uh, uh, General Psychiatric Neuroscience. That, that's correct. So that's another yeah. open, another open access publication. If you want to have a look at that, and we'll we'll put that in the show notes. But in the process of us doing that meta analysis, we just found that um, when it came to what people reported, the quality was so variable. And uh, you know, of course, you know, like like any researchers, we would email the corresponding author to go can we have some more details uh only i think it was less than 50 percent of people actually responded and some that's that's pretty normal um your response rate for i'd say cold calling but i guess the implication is slightly different um if you write and ask for anything short of you know can i have a lollipop um Anything greater than that, I suppose. Anyway, even even a really relatively trivial request, mm. your response rate, fifty uh, percent is really good, and twenty uh, percent is really bad. And everything I've ever seen where people have contacted authors on mass for data, further details, etc., mm. the somewhere between twenty and fifty percent. That's so. It's exactly where, exactly where you'd think it would be. Yeah, yeah. So that seemed that seemed to be the hit rate. So looking at meta analyses, if there was actually a set of reporting guidelines that people followed, then there would actually be no need or less of a need um, to actually request these details for which people hmm. tend to only respond to half the time. And of course, you probably get pretty sick during review. I know I'm. This is one of my pet hates, and you spend all this time learning about signal stuff. And then other people send you signals, and their description of it is: "We did our heart rates with the variables. We <laughs> we hit we hit data with big hammer. Make great variance. Lol." Uh, and you know that's from an English-speaking work group in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, could 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 it could it be better? Um, yeah, it could be. It could be a lot better. Mm. Um, you can't review every paper. And uh, request these things. So, the the problem invariably is the fact that uh, all of this research in psychiatry is applied research. Yeah. No one's talking about doing specific work on the HIV. They're not interested in the method. A lot of the time, they're not interested in further relationships with other physiological variables. It's not physiological psychology. It's applied psychiatry stuff yeah when it's reviewed if the paper's on anxiety it's sent to people whose primary interest in research is anxiety it's not sent to some nebbish fool like us who's going to sit down and go hang on a second did you is this is this signal windowed Uh." (laughs) um and yeah, the the thing that I like about it, I mean, obviously, like most of these projects, this is something that you had to talk me into doing. Yeah. Um, and that I eventually came to accept after a lot of arguing 
which is now I think our, our normal method of interacting is you're trying to talk me into something and me telling you you're a dick for a fortnight. And then <laughs> but then you come around and you think it's the best thing ever. I don't know about best thing ever. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> I do. I sort of I get there in the end. You get there um, in the end. But you know, you've also had some terrible ideas that we haven't done. So there is that. <laughs> um, no, but I quite like the approach. Though I would rather sort of just put everything out there. Um, and you know, I'm going to strike gold eventually. Some of the stuff I look back going, yeah, that was pretty dumb or that that's good. I mean, thing is everything's worth doing, but there's only a certain, a certain amount of time you can actually put into stuff. Well, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. Look, it's a matter of, um, you know, like, is it, is it useful? Yeah. 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 Um, you know how a fairly, I'd, I'd rather save up something really useful and have a single publication than continually produce things but it's all a matter of like how committed you are to writing and producing stuff versus thinking about it yeah and, um, yeah i range all over that spectrum depending on the time of day and how much coffee i've had to drink um so here's a here's a good question for you mm. um there are lots of existing guidelines but i mean this is a huge area of research with 12 1200 papers published a year um in various areas of uh, medical sports psychological and social sciences using uh, heart rate variability methods mm. lots and lots and lots of different subfields within those obviously um, guidelines already exist why do we need psychiatric guidelines well when it comes to uh, I think particularly when it comes to the participant selection yeah so that was one of the main or one of the four domains that we're specifically talking about was looking at these um these populations cuz you know when you when you're looking at someone with anxiety for instance um the recent paper that we've been working on we were looking at um university students who they did reach criteria or DSM4 criteria for anxiety but these mm. weren't these weren't people who were severely severely anxious these were university students they were uh, you know, attending university, so they were coming. So obviously they were. So they were they were functional. They were functional. Um, yet they still met as much as you can consider a university undergraduate <laughs> to be functional, right? Uh, yeah, and but then you know, so if we if we if we just said in our paper, yeah, we had people with anxiety, yeah, that would be the same as comparing with perhaps people who were inpatients in the facility with severe, severe anxiety. So it's really important to actually give a lot of detail as to where you recruit these people from, um, how severe their, um, their disorder is, um, but also importantly, where you got your controls from. There's a big difference between getting your controls from another bunch of undergraduates uh, whereas in this case, it was actually a really appropriate control group because we were comparing undergraduate that didn't meet criteria for anxiety versus undergraduate they did. Um, but quite a lot of the time, what you'll find is, um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're recruiting just in the community, you're recruiting people with anxiety in the community versus uh, healthy undergraduate. Um, now, it's quite, obviously, the ideal thing is to recruit um, community representative controls. But that's really hard, and not many people do that. Um, so it's really important to actually specify where you got your control groups from so you're comparing people as much as possible except for the variable of interest, which in this case is the, the psychiatric disorder. Hmm. 
Um, so that was one of the main reasons. But also that when you're looking at these papers, you often see people making the same sort of mistakes. When you're looking at, for instance, um, you know, the for some reason I've noticed um, that the developmental psychology people, they're usually quite good. Yeah. Why is that? Um, it's it's uh, what, what, historically it's a, what's the, what's the what's the what's the deal there? I think it's the hangover from having methods established a very long time ago and being led to some degree to understand them. Yeah. Um, also, look, developmental developmental psychology is viciously difficult. Uh, recruitment is challenging. Um, a lot of the time, you've got non-verbal measurement that you're supposed to take care of in my experience uh people who are doing recruitment and laboratory assessment of any sample um the harder the people are to get the more you think about the context into which you're appropriately getting the people Uh. so if you have something like pediatric autism or six-month-old children Uh. you can't just walk out on a street with a clipboard um you know, yeah. So that makes I mean, sense. I have, I have. I'm from the exact opposite world. I go, what would you like? Oh, I'd like a, I'd like people who are culturally uh, homogenous, please. I'd like people who are as, as as healthy and as normal and as straightforward as humanly possible. Because I'm trying to establish something normative. Like, yeah. oh, would you, would you like a huge bag of 19 year old white undergraduates? Yes, please. <laughs> Do you remember, oh, I can't remember which one it was. So it's an experiment where every single participant was 19. So that, there was that, no... St- that you did? Yeah. Was that no st- uh, coincidence or on purpose? It's just because they're all being sampled from the same year. Yeah. And I didn't need that many people. By the time I got to the end, I go, are you 19 as well? Oh, yeah. yeah so, so, so did you... <laughs> Fair enough. So, so when it came to you reporting your de- 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 demographics, you had um, a mean of 19 and a standard deviation of zero. Well, it's no point reporting a standard deviation <laughs> when you've got all participants with 19 no. years of age. That's it, you know, yeah. get stuffed. Um, so, yeah, psychiatry has the precise opposite problem, is that you've got to define a very specific group of people yeah. in in context yeah. um, and put whatever construct you're using into the context. So... Anxious students, anxious 40-year-olds, anxious people with jobs, people who are so anxious they can't leave the house. Mm. I don't know. On and on it goes. Mm. But, um, you know, that's only part of it, and that's why you wanted to write a psychiatry paper. Yeah. And then there's all this shit you made me do. <laughs> but these things are relevant far far, far beyond um, far beyond psychiatry, though. Yeah, a, a, exactly. A lot of the extra stuff. Uh, yeah, well, look, of course. I mean... Because what 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 uh, frustrates you the most when you're reading other papers? Everything. <laughs> okay, what frustrates you the most, which actually has the most implications for, uh, for research? The no no statement of how things of uh, how errors were corrected and identified. Okay, that's easily the worst thing because uh, look, if you've got a heart rate series over time and it's relatively short. And you just sneak in a few sneaky errors. Um, it complete. It can completely change the measurement of the. Oh, um, now I'm going to go into too much detail. That's Suffice right. to say that there's some there's some methods of measuring it that are drastically affected, uh, and there's some methods that are extremely robust. Mm. So. 
the the central problem is that you have no insight into how that happened unless there's some really specific stuff that's been reported um, and you don't know the quality of the the data in the first place so you've got unknown data quality because you, you don't see the data you see the summary statistics mm. so I mean I'm sure this happens in all the analogs to this in a lot of different areas you start off with data that you can't see it gets sent into statistics that you may or may not be able to trust and then the uh, sorry into summary statistics you may or may not be able to trust it turned into uh, averages essentially the averages are put through uh, frequent statistics that you may or may not trust turn into <laughs> conclusions that, that draw on theories that you may or may not uh, think are worth anything at all it's, um, it's and obviously a lot of the the theories about what we do not have space in unless we start doing uh, a podcast called irritating details about heart rate <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're best off leaving out um, the finer grain discussion of some of that stuff but suffice yeah. to say there's a series of levels there and the one that pisses me off the most is the data quality problem and in the few occasions I've had to get people's data and usually people that I've worked with and they say um, someone turns up and they, they want to do some work and I'm interested enough in it that they pay me um, yeah you get the data you look at the data and go why? Why are you here? <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? Why do you hate yourself? Why do you hate science? <laughs> um, and if you ask it like that, they get really upset. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a it's a wider problem because if you look at anything, you know, if you're looking at social psychology, you give you giving. Do I have to? Yeah. If you're looking at social psychology, you're giving out some questionnaires. Yeah. The worst thing you can deal with there is if there's missing data. That, that's the worst thing. There's, there's no interpretation, you know. You fill out the questionnaire and you answer it and that's it. But then when you, look, when you start looking at physiological measures, heart rate variability, fMRI, uh, EEG, there are so many things that can happen. There is, there's so many possible iterations of, of, of the raw data. Mm. Um, so the way you clean it, the way you approach it, what you consider an outlier, for instance, there are just uh, so many, so many ways that you can possibly, you know, finish up with those statistics, which you end up doing the analysis for. And mm -hmm. I think, short of you actually posting your data, which um, hey, for heart rate variability, uh, the the data, the actual size of the data is relatively small. Um, so mm. you can do that. We're actually doing that with our recent paper, one our anxiety paper, which is probably going to come out within the next few weeks. We will be posting the raw interbeat interval data. So that's not the raw data; it's processed. Sorry, no, you, 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 no, you're right. You're right. We are uh, posting the processed interbeat interval data. So you can actually go ahead and you can recreate exactly the analysis that we found. Yeah, no one's doing that. Also, I trust you. A little bit uh, <laughs> enough enough to not screw that up. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Look, the the, the central Be, being able to get access to that is uh, is a huge problem because I mean, if you if, if from a reviewing perspective, how much time do you have to redo people's basic processes? Um, you know, not mm, enough no, really. No. It's not it's not worth it. I mean, you can try as hard as you like to to help, but at some point in time, you're being weird and invasive. Um, and it's you know reasonably it's reasonably inappropriate according to 
lot of the people who own the data and people can be very uh uncomfortable with sending it away i've had plenty of you know you, you've, you've wondered previously how often i've asked for data mm. in a lot of different circumstances you've written to people and going look i just don't it's possible that there's an interesting explanation or a problem with what you've done. Mm. Can I see the data? And they go, oh, well, tell us about how everything could go wrong. And you explain what you think <laughs> might be happening. And they go, that's really interesting. And then they never write back. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, look, this is something that happens when you make the division between I need to produce scientific output versus I need to produce science. When you're on the the wrong side of the law when it comes to that. Yeah. I don't think a, a lot of people have no interest in you fossicking around and whether or not this stuff makes any sense. Mm. The point to them is is turning it into something that's codified that can be sold to other people. Um, at which point in time, of course, the scientific process starts to break down completely. <laughs> but you can't bomb everyone. So, you know, it's a structural problem mm. that we're now seeing explored uh, in great detail and at great volume through people who do work in replication and other areas of meta-science. But look, I think this is... Um, people are actually starting to take notice. Um, the reason that this... Oh, yeah, more than they did. Yeah, definitely. Well, the reason that this uh, this uh, episode is actually delayed a bit more than usual, I was because uh, I was uh, at the Biological Psychiatry Conference in Atlanta... Ah, and sunny, wonderful Atlanta. Yeah. How did you enjoy? How did you enjoy nature's toilet? Well, <laughs> I only sort of. Uh, I, I kind of. Apologies to Southerners, but Atlanta really is dreadful. I I got to leave the um, <laughs> I got to leave the conference venue. I think for one afternoon, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go do some shopping. What I found was that um, I was I am more understood speaking English in Norway than I am in Atlanta. I was yeah, saying, I was saying things, and people were just giving me the weirdest looks. I'm that like, that could be your head. Yeah. <laughs> people, yeah, people. I just was not understood. Um, so, uh, so that 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 was interesting. But for the actual conference itself, uh, there was a there was a panel session where they were actually speaking to three of the editors from leading psychiatry journals. And um, double mint, This is a matter of public. No, record. no, no. It, it was great. So um, one of the things that you've um, forgotten who they are, haven't you? No, it was John Crystal from Biological Psychiatry, and one of the things that he was talking about was um, one of the things they consider when they're looking at a paper. For one, the he was talking stats. Uh, they get about fifty papers a week. They'll publish three. Uh, they'll probably send about send out about fifteen of those, but they're going to publish three. But one of the things they were talking about when it comes to are we going to publish this paper is they asked the editors and the reviewers to think, will this actually replicate? Yeah. So, you know, if you're looking at genetics data, then what you can do is you can actually see, okay, this um, they've actually tested this in one population and they've tested it to replicate in another population. But you can't do that in a lot of circumstances. But if they get sent in, uh, a paper, they'll look at this, and if it's like a sample size of like fifteen, for instance, the 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 likelihood that that's actually going to be replicated is basically nil. So by looking at um, the actual experimental design and the sample size, they one of the it's not a you know set in stone criteria, but one of the things that they're really looking at was if it's unlikely that this result is going to be replicated based on the effect size, based on the approach, based on the sample size, it's not going to get up. And I thought that was interesting. And the other editors... Well, the- look, obviously obviously journals curate the hell out of the stuff that they let in or not. But 
what you're saying is on the basis of doing that curation, one of their primary criteria is not, is it novel and interesting, will it make a good press release, but is it appropriately powered? Um, can we actually do it again? Exactly. Well, the other um, the other things are also important. That's obviously a huge problem when it comes to, I mean, if you've got access to a very specific population or a very hard-to-access population. Mm. I mean, say we just want, uh, in the US, like adult black males, specifically from 65 to 74 or something, to examine some gestational thing from the 30s. Mm. Okay, there's probably like, four or five major urban centers you could do that so if you if you get uh, that sample i mean it's a very uncommon sample uh. so will it replicate well you mean directly or you mean in principle you can look for the same stuff so you've got issues of of, of novelty that that tie into that but look i'm sure they know what they're doing yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. i think you know of course they're going to they're going to take into consideration rarer diseases or rarer populations but I think that's yeah. fantastic that it's shifted from a, um, you know, will this make a good press release to will this oh, make a good... Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's If you've important. got something that will make a good press release, <laughs> there's plenty of journals who'd be very happy to talk to you <laughs> about how putting your balls in a cup of ice water makes you think of England or something. <laughs> they probably would. Well, speaking of temperature, there was a... Probably would. There was ball a, cup priming. Can we get into a bit well, of that? What's the ethics on but, ball cup priming? I'm sure someone will pass it. There was a really cool study that came out um, which looked at... Um, this. Uh, the, the Finns would love this paper. It was looking at um, extreme heat as antidepressant. Yeah? So they, they put together this weird tent-looking thing where they kind of slipped you inside. Your head was outside, but your, yep. um, your body was in there raise the temperature now this actually comes back to our episode on placebo their placebo was putting them in a thing which slightly raised their body temperature yeah but at the mm. same point of yeah. i'm going for a run but the actual experimental manipulation was let's really raise your temperature not to you know i'm going to make this person throw up yeah but um the, and that, the, you know what's what's the really good part of that what's the thing that immediately comes to mind with that I don't know. It worked. Possible to double blind. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was fantastic. As so you're an experimenter. You've got a protocol. Someone can set the protocol. You walk away, and then the person who's in the thing can be sitting there going, "Oh, my knees are really hot." And you, you know, you, the experimenter can be completely naive to exactly how hot the knees are. And, and the way they tested it was they basically um, they just had a thermometer in the uh, and they were testing the body temperature, and they had yeah. a set. The experimental manipulation was the set body temperature. So they they raised it. I forget what the actual temperature was, but they raised it, and there was striking effects on um, reducing. I think it was Hamilton depression scores, which is the gold standard, um, and uh, it worked really really well. So I think that's um, why. I, I I don't know what the actual mechanism is, um, but it it seemed to have worked. Uh, I don't know where it was published either, but it was a it was a good journal. Was it the journal of people who really like to have warm balls? I don't know, but I'm hugely skeptical of this. Well, uh, I don't know. People that I respect said it was good, so I haven't actually read the paper, but I'll have to look into it. Okay. However... Um, That's always... I mean, I know people bang on about arguments from authority and stuff, mm. but when that happens, and someone whose opinion I, I really like, you know, she walks in and she goes, That's a really good thing, and you should uh, you should pay attention to that as we checked it out at a detail level. That's way better than... That's about the best endorsement it could have. Yeah, um, and it was a few people who were saying this. This is actually really cool. Uh, and you know, from, from what I understand, you know, they, the the authors didn't sort of overhype their research. So, like, you know, this is cool. We don't exactly know what's going on, 
but it seems to work. Um, we did a really cool way of blinding it for participants. Um, and uh, the nation of Finland is, uh, is extremely happy. You know, every, every, I meet a few Finns here and they ask, what do you miss about Finland? And the first thing they look at me in the eye and they say, sauna. Not, not enough sauna. And you can tell the houses here that have been lived in by a Finn because they've converted like a pantry into a sauna or they've converted like a broom closet into a sauna. <laughs> if you can literally... It's huge, huh? If it's can, awesome. Yeah, it's great. If you can, if you, I've seen ones where you can literally just fit one person. Doesn't matter. Get home from work, hop in the sauna. It's, they, it's, just, it's just an oven, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's... If you create Or as they call it, the child sauna. <laughs> but that, yeah. sauna? Sauna. But they swear by it and they say, yeah, it's great for depression, it's great for all this kind of stuff. So the, the, the Finns... Once again, they're uh, they're they're ahead of the curve, possibly. So I have to I have to say, um, with my my mother told me some bullshit story about a sauna when I was a kid. It made it sound really dangerous, and then I tried one when I was a teenager. I think. Yeah. Well, um, what story did she tell you? Oh, because look, she's had low blood pressure problems her whole life. She really didn't have enough to drink, and she went in one and it. it Damn near turned her into an antelope or something. It's <laughs> oh, but it can be can be dangerous if you if you're not well and if you're dehydrated. Yeah, but I I tried I tried one on the basis of well she doesn't know everything. I mean, so you know also you're you're a teenager. It's sort of it's very low on the list of uh, <laughs> list of risks that you're willing to take. So of course I tried it and found that it was absolutely brilliant. I don't know how they aren't more popular everywhere. Yeah, like complete. Especially, I mean, if you came from somewhere cold, the appeal is just off the charts. It is. I, I had a, I had a great time. We went up to uh, the family's uh, the mountain cabin. It was excellent, and there is a sauna up there, and you just sit there, run out, roll in the snow, hop back in again. It's um, yeah, huge, huge fan. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing, isn't it, to think that we we grew up somewhere hot. <laughs> we've both moved to places that are legendary for their unpleasant weather and now we're talking about saunas it's a kind of a circle of life it is a circle of life thing uh, do we have to continue Let, let's take a break now so we can continue to talk about our filthy ridiculous paper in a minute. <laughs> that sounds good welcome back to everything hurts and Today in this episode, we are talking about heart rate variability, specifically our new paper describing guidelines for reporting heart rate variability within the biobehavioral sciences. But before we go on, we want to uh, we want to thank our listeners, our people who have been uh, retweeting our episodes uh, this week. Thanks to uh, James Coin, uh, I think he's at Coin of the Realm on Twitter. Also, hey Jim. <laughs> also, uh, very very active on on Facebook as well. Thanks for for sharing episodes. Uh, if Jim's you... active on everything. <laughs> yeah, he he has opinions, man. <laughs> if um if you like what you hear, you know we 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 don't get any money for this. We do this we do this just for the for the fun of it. So if you do like, yeah, because yeah, it's a laugh. It is a laugh. One of us talked the other into it. <laughs> if you do like what you hear, um, you can uh, you can thank us by sharing our episodes. You can share it on Twitter. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at at Hertz Podcast. 
You can also find us on Facebook by searching Everything Hurts Podcast. And on Twitter and on Facebook, we also share our links on things that we talk about during our episodes. Um, if you have mm. episode ideas, we um, our last episode on the placebo effect was, uh, was a listener that, um, that gave us that suggestion. So if you have any ideas on stuff that we can cover, please let us know. I mean, we've, we've had a few more, but we've largely ignored them. Um, <laughs> if we like them, we'll... Uh... No, if Dan likes them, he'll badger me until I say yes. <laughs> so anything that appeals to him... Feel free to uh, we'll, we'll do it. Push push that into the conversation. And uh, we also um, we mentioned in our last episode of if anyone has any academic horror stories, we had a a few people send some to us. So if you <laughs> if you if you do have any more, um, yeah. Pl- it's also I just realised how easy it was to find them. I was um, doing a little bit of background on that because mm. um, I thought eh, this is this is interesting. The whole sort of quitlet. That's, genre a as a subgenre that I've come to call shitlit about how <laughs> terrible people's experiences can be. <laughs> There's a whole series on Gorka right now, um, a website that I think in general should get in the bin, uh, but they are doing a whole series on what it's like to be an adjunct professor in America, Oof. which is a contract-based uh, teaching academic. Um, All I hear and, is those people, uh, it's stories of adjuncts living in cars and having like working between four different institutions it, is, it sounds wild it is, the, it is the most appalling way to make a living um non-research staff here are treated as so thoroughly disposable it's just um it is totally unconscionable yeah. but this is yeah so you remember i wrote this thing a while back about things to consider before you start a PhD? Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Um, well, yeah, if I could add a coder to that, it would be... Because, I mean, we both have probably very little experience in the academic track where you end up doing a lot of teaching, obviously, in the humanities. And less people do historical research, mm. quote-unquote, than, you know, uh, history faculty. Um, but, you know, even below that is a, a huge swathe of people who are teaching the courses mm. and doing all the actual work of teaching undergraduates at institutions who are just suffering man. Mm. it's really bleak yeah. um but uh we'll, we'll take any sorrow story we can get our hands on because um they're uh they're good they're good for perspective um they're good for us as well mm. i think we've had i mean i've not had this is a like a luck planning um careful choice of topics and you put all, put all that to one side and you go what's the really important thing yeah, it's probably circumstance it's probably luck mm. I think people who don't see that have a sort of a central emotional dishonesty about how good they think they are because mm. it's almost impossible to be so good that everything works out without you having to invest time into like really aggressive career promotion and progression stuff yeah i've seen a few people who can do that but in general they are are usually engineers um or mathematicians or they work in something really technical and they're usually working on a problem that has got really really broad implications for lots of stuff not just research mm. yeah everyone else is as far as the system's concerned utterly disposable yeah 
And that's pretty scary when you spend 14 years at university to train to do a thing and you find a system that just does not give one-tenth of one fuck about what happens to you. Uh. So after that cheery sort of non-introduction, yeah, if you've got horror stories, the bad supervisor, the bad collaborator, the bad person, um, you know, the untenable situation, this helps other people. This is a good perspective to be telling and... People go on about it occasionally, but like the actual stories mm. are much more effective than talking about the issues. And also, I mean, when we talk about the issues, we're talking about like what we think is happening elsewhere. Exactly. We've, yeah. got, we've got a pretty good... So, yeah, there are other people's stories. Mm. But there are other people's stories now who are like, writing from difficult situations. So... I think one yeah. one really. I'd like to I'd like to tell those stories. One, I think they're good. One really interesting website for this is uh, not good. I'm going to clarify <laughs> that immediately. I don't think it's good that shitty things are happening to you. I think it's good that the stories are being told on a kind of collective level and people can realize what they're getting themselves into. No, nah, that, that that have to be told. But uh, one really interesting website for this is uh, is Quora, which is a a question and answer yeah. website. But the good thing about Quora is that you put a question up there and people upvote the best responses. And there's kind of an academic subgenre of people talking about, um, you know, their PhD struggles and people give them advice, which is fantastic. And, and one which popped up was, um, how do I kick my PhD supervisor off my papers? So that was, uh, that was an interesting oh, one. That's, that's difficult. Yeah. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was always inappropriate. That is entirely dependent on circumstance. That could be everything from wildly dishonest, incredibly inappropriate, uh, and the act of a complete sociopath through to just the most appropriate thing you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Supervisor is uh, horrible. Yeah. Um, like other circumstances. It's not just a personality thing, obviously. Mm. Um, I, I don't know, Cora. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's good, it's, for, a, it's it good for a lot of stuff. It sounds a lot like, it sounds a lot like a, a GitHub or um, the... Stack Exchange. Uh, what's, what's the... Stack Exchange, yeah. Yeah, it, it is more general. It question. is Stack Exchange. It, it's I think I think it's actually really interesting. Um, basically, for uh, I'll ev- stick to Stack Exchange. Everything, but today, <laughs> but today we are talking uh, hybrid variability. Um, now speaking of, of that, uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna raise your your blood pressure, James. I'm gonna I'm gonna say oh one. fantastic. I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna say one word. Yeah. Yes. Sympathovagal balance. That's two words, you massive donkey. <laughs> two words. Sympathovagal. Uh, well, that's... Yeah. What? What is it? What isn't it? And why do people keep reporting it? Uh, I've made his brain explode. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's start by saying that um, the two primary immediate determinants of heart rate at any given point in time is the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. And they are controlling at a gross level, there's a lot of other stuff, they're controlling at a gross level the speed of your heart rate and other stuff as well. But primarily here we're talking about the interval, so we'll just confine it to that. Now, because of the different regulatory cycles that are going on in your heart rate at any given point in time. Uh, the combinative signal, we have a, a two, two different sort of uh, 
neurotransmitters involved here. And they combine in curious and interesting ways to produce an instantaneous heartbeat because they regulate the firing of the heart. Um, these two, the admixture of these two things, which interact with each other, don't necessarily work reciprocally. Um, they, they, they have their own, they have their own agendas a lot of the time, but a lot of the time they act classically reciprocally. In other words, if, uh, if, if the parasympathetic outflow is high, the sympathetic outflow is low and vice versa because um, the the change from one to the other is designed to uh, maintain cardiac output at any given point in time. However, because of the different uh, regulatory processes involved, you end up with two primary speeds of fluctuation within the heartbeat. And one of the ways that people try to determine the basic balance between these two branches of the nervous system and the outflow to the heart is by comparing the, the ratio or proportion of the, the, the presence or absence essentially of these two speeds. Um, this is a very convenient idea mm. and convenient ideas in science uh, do extremely well because people, people like them. It doesn't mean they ask enough questions about them. It means that they, because the idea has utility, uh, people like the idea. The problem is the mixture of these two autonomic branches into the speeds has been very heavily confused by a specific original demonstration from the early 90s. And what it says is that as proportionally as sympathetic cardiac outflow increases, you can expect a change in the proportion of these two speeds. Now, without going into any more detail than that, I have to say that uh, I was actually looking at this the other day for some work on what's called orthostatic tilt, which is a very old school and relatively boring intervention where you just change the angle of a person who's lying down mm. to change their relationship. It's basically what's called the body component due to gravity. You're changing its angle. Like, is it pointing straight down? Is it pointing slightly down? Etc. Etc. So it, you're essentially modifying someone in uh, proportion towards standing as they go from lying down at 5, 10, 15, 20, mm. 30 degrees. Once you get to 45 degrees, it doesn't feel like lying down anymore. You feel like you're sort of standing up. You, and you, you made one of these, didn't you? I did, yeah. It wasn't very hard. Um, the main problem with this theory, and this, it's uh, the main problem with it, obviously, uh, is that the idea that we can get our broad autonomic balance from simple measurements of uh, these proportions uh, is a shit idea. It's gone from being sort of not very well established to really quite implausible to just being battered witless due to a, a half a dozen other streams of information. Um, if you collect all the papers that directly contradict it, it would probably be in the region of 40 to 60 mm. actual demonstrations of something that say using this particular method of, of technically measuring sympathovagal balance has no validity whatsoever. Yeah, we, yeah, we is, keep is seeing papers that report that. It is continued. There's more than 100 papers a year that mention either the calculation that's used or sympathovagal balance in the title or abstract every year. 
yes, I have gone through PubMed and calculated that. Because mm. um, that has to go into a paper. I'm not making that up. There's more than 100. And the amount that was actually in the body of the paper, obviously, would be higher. So this is what happens when you have a method that's uh, it's, it's widely used because it's useful. And at the point in time it becomes normal, it justifies other people using it. And that's a huge problem because then you start pointing to all these situations where it managed to find a difference between A and B in an experiment. You say, well, it can't be meaningless because it found a difference between A and B. Mm. It can't be meaningless because there's 100 papers on it. Well, fucking can. That's <laughs> obviously a problem. Um, it's just, theoretically, it's just, a, it's, just a, it's just a wasteland. It was a nice idea. It didn't work. But people continue to use this. Um, and everyone who writes a, a paper uh, that I have to review where this is in there, I don't just assume that I don't just assume that they're like they've made a bad analytical decision. I assume they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, and I think um, and quite a lot of the times when you when you read closely into methods and how they report stuff, it becomes pretty clear that people don't when they don't understand the fundamentals. Uh, I mean, for, for example, when I was at um, at uh, the Biological Psychiatry Conference, there was a number of HIV posters that were being presented, and I came up to one poster, uh, and the thing with the, the so-called sympathovagal balance, which is made up of normalized high frequency and, and normalized low frequency, is that these two things, um, in almost all circumstances, um, unless you're including the very low frequency, should add up to 100 so they should be adding up to the to, to 100 there. So well, there's they're two they're two relative contributions out of 100. percent So I mean, what you're saying is that's the definition. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um. So but so if if low frequency is uh, is 30, then high frequency. You know, there's no point in reporting high frequency because you know it's 70. Yet I was coming across a po- I came across this poster where they were actually reporting and these things didn't add up to 100. And on top of that the p-values were actually different when these things should be exactly equivalent. Now, for someone who actually understands the basis of what's going on here, they should look at that going, hang on a minute, something is wrong here. The, the, the basis, the technical basis of 100 minus 30. <laughs> yeah, no, but just of how it's actually... You're right, that is brutally complicated. Yeah, but, but people just don't understand. It's, it's the whole idea that software has become too easy. People are putting numbers into the software, pressing pressing buttons which want getting the significances and they're getting this thing that comes out going cool let's just report this we have you know i, I think cubios for instance uh in, brilliant piece of software it's free um but uh, you know i think it gives you about 30 outputs and about half of them are non-linear which people don't even understand not even the non-linear mm. researchers understand what's what's actually happening don't don't get me started on so we're not going to we're not going to go there but the, the fact remains that we have these software packages which just give this gives us these these ton a ton of measures and um mm. when you have enough measures one of them is going to be significant um and um but time and time again when, when you speak to people i'm like oh you know i'm doing hiv but oh but you know i, I know this sympathophagal thing isn't a thing but that's that's the one thing that was actually significant it's the one thing that's extremely volatile yeah because it's a ratio measure yeah um 
and and also the other thing is that um generally when people who are uncritically accepting analytical methods that don't work at all are generally the people who don't notice the fact that when you use something like this you do not get a normally distributed variable mm. so they don't log adjust it you end up with this really weird sort of data that's got a really long right tail and obviously anything that's got a a little bit of volatility in the right tail you can is going to dramatically pull the average up and so you've got 30 people and you've got an interquartile range between about um 0.8 and about 1.5 and you have a few people who are eight uh. yeah it tends to it tends to drag things up the scale a little but I think the situation's getting a lot better. In in the more respected journals, you don't see mentions of sympathovagal balance. Hopefully, because a reviewers and editors are catching onto it, um, but also yep. that researchers are becoming more knowledgeable. But in more, let's say, either generalist journals or more fringe journals, then this is still this is still a thing. So there was obviously at least the reviewers who were asleep at the wheel. Um, or, or, or editors, or, or or what have you. So it's um, yeah, it's just incredible that this day and age you still see it happening. Yeah. Well, look, think of think of issues like uh, think of how badly people use normal everyday statistics. <laughs> yeah. Think of the arguments that we've had about that. Think about the arguments that people have had about the validity of different types of scale data from Likert type scales. Yeah. Think about the construct validity behind some of the more popular uh, scales and subscales that are generally deployed mm. within psychology. Um, systematic issues where everything is screwy are not confined just to biological psychology. Um, the, the old problem is that there's at least some excuse and the excuse is that I don't really expect, I think it's very unfair to expect someone who is within the social scientific tradition to start from, okay, this is a sinoatrial node. <laughs> this is an orthostatic response. This is tilt. I mean, think about what, what changes during ortho. I mean, the, the whole thing is that if you, if you take someone who's lying down, the whole reason this method exists is that if you take someone who's lying down and you gradually tilt them towards being uh, upright yeah then uh a, a a variable uh a variable changes and because we know that the sympathetic outflow is modified very nicely by posture mm. because the ratio changes as the posture changes then the measure that you take is a measure of sympathetic outflow mm. now it's shit raising mm. yeah but it's not utterly unreasonable on the face of it and it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. Mm. Yeah? But what else is changing when you change people and you, you, you tilt them up? What else changes? Blood pressure. Not just a heart period. Uh, Peripheral resistance. Yeah? yeah. Blood pressure. Um, preload. This is hard things now. Um, muscle sympathetic nerve activity output yeah. is proportional to the sign of the angle. Burst pattern, the the burst pattern of the sympathetic output changes. Um, where the where the blood is changes. All this stuff. Mm. Lots and lots and lots and lots of things. Now, do you expect a psychologist to go through that in that kind of detail? 
And is it fair to go, oh, look at these idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. It's not fair. It's, not fair. It's, yeah. it's utterly unfair. And I try to remember that, you know, oh, I don't like how people did some message stuff. That's because you did a whole PhD on methods, you dick. <laughs> There's like the voice on my shoulder, you know? Mm. So the, the, it's if, if there's a job of like maintaining the fidelity of that stuff, people aren't going to people are supremely interested in it. But is it fair to expect them to go and do it themselves? So, well, I want to do research on autism. I want to do research on personality. Well, if you want to use those measures, then start from scratch, and uh, eighteen months later, you'll have a good idea of how the physiology works that you want to measure while doing your other stuff. No one has time for that. Not even grad students have time for that. But it shows you the the importance of of collaboration. Yeah, you know, say for instance, oh god, yes. If, if we wanted yeah. to move into a different area, you could a, a spend the time, read up on it, or b save yourself a lot of time and actually collaborate with someone. Right, write a nice email to an expert. Yeah, is how I acquire new knowledge. Yeah, that's, no, it's it's so true. It's um that that's that's how you do it. Uh, unless you're specifically moving into a whole new area as your as your primary mode of research, yeah. you just collaborate. People people yeah. are friendly. You know, I've I've never had someone who has not replied when I've asked a question. So they're I think so they're friendly. So they're open. I think they're open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a more sort of a, I think there's a collegiality is probably the right kind of word. And people who are well established, who believe, you know. Oh, she's young. She's got uh, she's got a half a dozen papers in this thing. She works with all these different people. She's always going to write back to you. Mm. You know, he's four hundred years old. He lives in a tree. He's emeritus <laughs> professor of whatever. He's probably doesn't still can't work his email. Yes, people like that still exist. No, don't ask me why. Um, so yeah, so you know, it's the right kind of target. You're always going to find out. Yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, look, you 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 drew me out and made me try to explain on the fly before 10 in the morning uh, without breakfast um, what was the problem with sympathovagal balance. Um, the How does that fit into the broader context of our paper? Well, so the fact is, if you, mean, you can state anything you like. You can stack up all kinds of bullshit and expect sort of multifarious results when it's easy enough to measure. Um, you can stack in a whole bunch of measurements. It's not going to be a problem. Mm. But you need to have them presented the right way. And if you're going to include dodgy ones, you need to include some non-dodgy ones as well. Mm. And that's why you propose, like, a, a, a guideline really is like a minimum acceptable, a minimum acceptable standard. Um, there's plenty of things that we wrote on the basis of, do you know this issue exists? You have to report this. Mm. Where I have a very strong opinion on how it should be done, <laughs> none of which are in the article. Yeah, none of which are in the article. We were we were very broad. We just said this, we were, this is very important. Um, we were extremely agnostic about that. I think the only thing that we and said. Now I've had two separate conversations about people going, "Why are you giving equal time to this theory that people who really understand this don't believe in you, idiot?" And the response to which is, "Well." I'm trying to be even-handed so people will pursue a minimum standard in the absence of arguing about the theory. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I want to, regardless of what you think about it, if it's reported right, everyone is going to have, you know, everyone's going to understand it better. And you... That was what I was saying before. Was the, 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 the great thing, like you said, you said HIV is like, uh, HIV is 
available to everyone now as a method. We take a heart rate, we turn it into physiological information. It's very easy to do. It's one of those things. It's, it, it's, it's so, I mean, we used to train people to do lab collection stuff. Our introduction to how to stick a thing on and get data that we could use for people who are starting at the very beginning took 20 minutes. Mm. There you go. 20 minutes, you're a scientist. Here's the <laughs> it, was no, it was no worse or better than stuff that anyone else was collecting. Mm. Very occasionally something would go wrong and the, then it was a problem, but the vast majority of the time it didn't. Mm. So data collection is really, really easy to access. And, you know, it's like democracy. What's great about democracy? It's Everyone gets to vote. What sucks about democracy? Everyone gets to vote. Exactly. <laughs> so HIV is exactly the same. Um, your access means that the field is open. Uh, it costs you uh, $150 to get started. Mm. Uh, you can start recording stuff and sending it to you. You are now officially doing physiological measurement. You can take these incredibly minimalist setups now and if you're doing the right experiment you can get data that will inform all sorts of problems with physiological information mm. that also means that uh you're going to the amount of data that's available and the amount of context in which it's tried mean you're going to seriously dilute how quality markers work um, and there's going to be an awful lot of research where people are starting it from scratch. Yeah. That's the other thing. A lot of people are trying it for the first time. It's not that they have a research group where everything's set up. Mm. Um, I remember a story once about people who were, this is uh, maybe five years ago, and someone said with a certain amount of derision, oh, that very established research group, they're still using grass amplifiers. You know, the old things that come with stacks <laughs> yeah. where you put a set up? Do you know what? Yeah. Do you know what happens when you use a grass amplifier? Well, first of all, it's accurate. That's the first thing. Uh, and the other thing is you actually have to know what you're doing. Yeah. As soon as I see you know a paper words? reported with grass, I'm like, oh, they must. I know there's some there's someone who's been working with, you know, cardiac yeah. physiology for 40 years. I'm going to yeah. trust that thing. So what else are you going to have? You're going to have stuff like, um, oh, look, there's a, oh, we have a consultant engineer. Oh, we wrote our own code. Oh, we're doing our own stuff. And you go, oh, well, that seems all very sort of, old school and unnecessary and it's not flashy it's probably right mm. um so that's a really really good start being right yeah um i like that so science generally rewards you for being <laughs> correct so, well, sometimes not but you know it works its way around so i think yeah and one of the main things with this um with this guidelines paper is that if you are new to the area and you're reading it it'll actually make you think about these things yeah so it'll make you think about, am I actually considering this? Am I considering the equipment? Am I considering how I'm cleaning it? Um, so you can get to the point going, I can do this myself and I can do this confidently. And when I report it, I'm going to know what I'm doing or oh, I need someone to help me. So at least people will think and they'll be reading this not when it comes to the, even though it's called reporting guidelines, you'd probably start thinking about these things before you report because quite often you've already done your analysis, you've done your collection, and you'd be like, oh, I've taken the wrong approach. And isn't that a nice feeling? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have breakfast. Yeah. This is killing me. Let's uh, wrap it up for today. But thanks for listening. Um, please send in your academic horror stories for our 
next episode and uh are we doing that are we confirmed doing that next episode oh i'm sick of i'm sick of not talking about that let's do it next episode. unless, unless something like huge happens in science i, 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 I don't know we, 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 unless something huge happens you know uh <laughs> they just they, they discover something or something comes up let's um oh yeah let's hope there's no breaking developments in cosmology yeah we have to talk about. <laughs> yeah then we'll have to do that but otherwise we will be will be tackling tackling these uh these horror stories next episode but uh thanks for listening and bye for now see you